0: Christine Laurier. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbine. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Marin Green. And this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Hey guys, Solo Cast here. I used to do these more often. Um, but who's got time to write and write and write nowadays? But I've been waiting a birth in Oceanside and. I've recently had some personal experiences that have made me compelled to write and write and write. So I wrote an essay that's 27 pages long, really for my own purposes. And then I figured, you know, this might be a good one to release in podcast form. So here we go. This one's titled Horizontal Violence in Birth Work is Feeding the Medical Leviathan. I'm more of a young man personally. But I did glean at least one sentiment from Freud's work that was prescient for our times. In his book, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, Freud describes the two primary instincts of humans, eros versus thanatos, connection versus destruction. Typical of Freud, he surmised that both of these instincts are at play in each of us, in the subconscious, and therefore out of our control. His tendency to disempower individuals is one aspect about Freud's body of work that has always graded me. Yet I do believe there's an important relevance to the notion that many of us seem to lean more heavily on one of these instincts in how we show up in our relationships, in our craft, and even in the way that we treat ourselves. The old fable of the two wolves comes to mind. This story has been attributed to the Cherokee lineage, the who knows from where these stories actually arise. An elder helps a child resolve an interpersonal conflict by describing the two wolves that are living inside of us. One is full of love, one is full of hate. And these two wolves are always grappling for supremacy. When the boy asks, which wolf wins? The elder responds, the one that you feed. According to the media, the world is in crisis, and it seems like it's reaching ahead, like a pimple ready to burst. Perhaps the world has always been this way. Or perhaps we're in an ebb awaiting the flow. Or maybe I'm just more aware of it now that I'm an adult helping my kids navigate the tricky terrain. I'm currently organizing another twins breach conference for birth workers, and I'm finding that it's nearly impossible to find a birth worker who doesn't have a bunch of dirty laundry hidden away from the public eye. Be careful inviting her. She's a walking red flag. Not sure she'd be great for the optics of the conference. She did a terrible thing decades ago. These are the insights I'm receiving from other invited speakers. I can't seem to shake the image of crabs pulling their colleagues back into the bucket. I personally found myself in a social media storm recently after comments I made around personal accountability and informed consent on pregnancy and birth control respectively were taken out of context. For those who know me personally, terms like misogynist, elitist, and narcissist don't fit my track record. But in the words of my friend and prolific philosopher Charles Eisenstein, quote, if you want to destroy somebody, you indicate that they are reprehensible, that anyone who associates with them is also therefore reprehensible. That process is not a judicial process. It is completely irrational, end quote. That's exactly what my critics did. People like us, out-of-hospital birth workers, are constantly at war with the ongoing narrative that out-of-hospital birth is reprehensible. And now the war has arrived on my very own doorstep and my colleagues have suffered some of the consequences those who first sounded the alarm were conventional obgyns many conventional doctors are driven to medicine by a scarcity mindset with a deep personal fear that they wouldn't otherwise be valued in society without the illusion of financial security and community offered by the cult of medicine after finishing their training they hold on to deep-seated rational fears of litigation death of a patient and financial insecurity i know this because i was one of them we doctors are great at memorizing details for the purpose of acing exams but this is of little use in the sacred art of birthkeeping birthkeeping requires an entirely different skill set which is a lot to ask of someone who has spent the majority of their early adult lives in school True patient-centered care requires a firm grasp of informed consent, and the blatant disregard for this bioethical principle in the practice of conventional maternity care was the reason I left hospital-based obstetrics just a few years after completing my residency training. Soft speech and charming pleasantries are simply not replacements for a person's autonomy. But this issue aside... How could an OBGYN refute the fact that we overemphasize the benefits of hormonal contraception while underemphasizing, if not completely disregarding, the downsides? It was, in fact, the constant harassment from other, more conventional OBGYNs that finally persuaded me to swat back at my critics, in an, in an admittedly nasty way. Their harassment and prodding led to innumerable comments slung my way, including a few that bordered on scary, like, your mom should have aborted you. Eventually, a person breaks under this pressure, and the bear wakes up, and he's mad. A quick search on PubMed reveals 173,975 results for the search term weight loss, and the best that many doctors can advise is, quote, eat less and exercise more. It's no wonder, then, that they have convinced you that PCOS, endometriosis, and pregnancy complications are completely out of your hands. Nor is it that surprising that women are given no advice on improving the robustness of their immune systems after an abnormal HPV or pap screen. On PubMed, you can find papers on the role of the gut microbiome in a variety of diagnoses, including endometriosis, cervical dysplasia, PCOS, and thyroid disorders. All are relevant to women's health. In general, conventional doctors have little experience or education in preventing or even mitigating diseases through lifestyle modification. Heck, in medical school, I received a single lecture on nutrition. As I always say, you don't go to Home Depot for cinnamon-glazed donuts, so why would you go to your OBGYN for lifestyle advice? And before you jump down my throat, I realize that the term lifestyle suggests that all people have a choice as to what they put into their bodies. But many of these medical issues impact rich white people nearly the same as underserved women of color. Besides, sleep, breathwork, and nervous system balancing techniques are free, and they're likely just as important as diet and exercise as a means of mitigating modifiable risk factors. And the most nutritious parts of the cow, their liver and knuckle bones, are 75% cheaper than their prized meat. Nitpicking language is a distraction from the real issue at hand. Without systemic change towards a more egalitarian, more inclusive society, we have no chance of improving our maternity statistics. Focusing on treatment alone of cervical dysplasia or persistent HPV without getting to the root cause and nipping it in the bud is just as futile as focusing all of our efforts on treating AIDS in Malawi without simultaneously prioritizing prophylaxis. The deck chairs are being rearranged as the Titanic is plunging to the bottom of the ocean. If you aren't invested in the conversation around preventing disorders like gestational diabetes and preeclampsia, and if you are unwilling to acknowledge that they are preventable through lifestyle modification, then maybe I'm not the guy for you. But if you're willing, let's turn to the peer-reviewed literature. A quick PubMed search reveals 6,303 papers resulting from the search term prevention of gestational diabetes. An analysis published in the Maternal and Child Health Journal by Correa et al. 2015 looked at over 4 million hospital births. The data revealed that over three-quarters of women who had pre-existing or gestational diabetes reported an annual household income of greater than $39,000. And to know what you're thinking, nobody can live comfortably on $39,000 a year. But 50% of those who had any type of of diabetes had private insurance. And no surprise, over half of the women in this study who developed gestational diabetes ended up with a C-section. So what about some of the smaller, more homogeneous nations? In Finland, where universal health care is provided through taxation and socioeconomic disparities are far less than those found in the United States, the richest nation in the world, gestational diabetes rates were higher in women from middle-income households than in the lowest or highest-income households. When somebody tells you that, quote, the science is settled, run. By definition, science is never settled. People have also derided me a conspiracy theorist due to my admonition that I don't think any of us fully understands the purpose of viruses in nature, and that perhaps we should be asking questions before implementing mandates when another pandemic arises, and it will. One of my heroes, John Ioannidis, MD, one of the world's most respected epidemiologists, author of 1,262 citations on PubMed, has virtually vanished after publishing just a few papers questioning the dogma around the poor epidemiologic techniques that were being peddled by the media, politicians, and three- and four-letter organizations. Yeah, the mob went after him, too. Science is not a matter of consensus. The scientific process is one that starts with questions and proceeds with a careful, open-minded investigation for their answers. The data at large in the United States certainly does support the notion that our socioeconomic disparities predispose the less fortunate to a myriad of health issues in and out of pregnancy. But aren't rich white people also developing gestational diabetes and preeclampsia? One of my childhood friend's wives developed preeclampsia in both of her pregnancies, resulting in induction and then C-section. Our yards were adjacent. He and his partner are white, cis, and Catholic. He and I went to the same college for undergraduate studies. He makes more money than I do. And when I recently went to their house for dinner, they offered me margarine for my bread. The fact remains that gestational diabetes and preeclampsia are not merely a disease of the poor minorities. To suggest otherwise is to confirm your internal bias and bypass the reality that whatever our circumstances, we must continue to find ways to love ourselves and our neighbors through personal accountability. We've been conditioned to hate ourselves, whip ourselves, feel not good enough, feel unworthy, feel shame and guilt. And a lot of this is projected through the anonymity afforded by the internet. Look at yourself in the mirror and say these words out loud to your reflection. I love myself. How did this feel? When I first did this exercise, I said the words out loud to myself while gazing into a stranger's eyes. It was a typical Burning Man experience. And yeah, it made me uncomfortable but it was also liberating. So liberating that I was nearly moved to tears. I thought to myself, am I really this guarded against my own vulnerability? Viktor Frankl's book, On Man's Search for Meaning, should be required reading for all humans. Aaron Antonovsky, the father of positive psychology, drew from Frankl's work and the observations of some Jewish Holocaust survivor's ability to remain optimistic and generous, despite perhaps the most forbiddable conditions any human might ever endure, Auschwitz. Many Jews were notably singing uplifting ballads well after the door of their gas chamber was sealed shut. Similar stories abound, from Japanese POW camps in World War II, to genocides in Rwanda and Bosnia, to the Khmer Rouge, in the, and in the United States, where many living civilians have never experienced the unexpe- unspeakable atrocities that push human instincts to the limits, that hill that many are willing to die on is a defense against the importance of personal accountability? I have crafted a life that gives me the luxury of time to do deep investigations to help heal my clients. The deep dives are acts of love. The summaries of ACOG's practice guidelines that I produce and share are acts of love. When I host conferences or contract with midwives to provide them collaborative care, these are acts of love. When I offer a woman a home birth because she is determined to heal the trauma from a prior hospital birth, it's an act of love. When I counsel my clients towards healthier lifestyle decisions, especially when their their resources are limited, it's an act of love. Why is it so hard to love ourselves? And if we can't love ourselves, how can we possibly love others? I could care less if a woman decides to take a pharmaceutical or undergo a surgery, as long as she is fully informed of the risks, benefits, and alternatives. We saw this play out in the years of COVID-19. Doctors were being stripped of their medical licenses for advising on not just the benefits of the vaccine, but also the risks. Prohibiting fully informed consent is a flagrant violation of the principles of bioethics, but many state medical boards would apparently disagree. I was fired on September 3, 2021 from my hospice group for removing my mask while caring for a 95-year-old man dying of heart failure. Due to COVID policies at his nursing facility, he hadn't been touched or seen a face for 18 months. He asked if I would take off my mask, and I did, happily. After all, my grandfather died at 100 years of age early in the pandemic, alone, not held by the comfort of loved ones. Where's the dignity in dying like that? I don't think many would resonate with the notion that life is merely the avoidance of death. Our fear of mortality has led to maternity practices that traumatize women in mental, emotional, and spiritual ways in an effort to reduce mortality to zero. Babies die. I wish as much as anybody that it weren't so. As a hospice physician, I've had the luxury of sitting with many deaths, and I've started to accept our mortal reality. But don't be fooled. I'm just as apprehensive as anybody when I am reminded that my little girls will one day have to sit with my carnal flesh, likely in tears, whilst my consciousness remerges with the collective. I don't see every dead baby as a failure of the medical sciences any more than I see the death of many adults as failures of the medical sciences. It's rare for babies to die in utero, or through childbirth, but unfortunately this is a part of being mortal. Sometimes unexplainable, unbelievably painful things happen to us here on Earth, and these events leave a catastrophic char on our hearts and minds, not least of which in the baby's parents. This reality is somehow ignored when we put into place policies that attempt to bring fetal and neonatal mortality rates to zero, leaving a significant burden of trauma in its wake for all of those touched by these unfortunate occasions. And these traumas aren't carried by our pregnant clients alone. They're experienced by families and birth workers alike nurses midwives and doulas included if we don't honor the ceremony of life our hearts can be left calloused not only towards others but also towards our clients and ourselves can we agree that the medical system has grown so big and powerful that it has outgrown its very purpose i went into medicine to bear witness to human suffering and to do my best to hold space and alleviate suffering whenever possible ceos of major hospital systems didn't invest their time and money into medical education they're business people, which is why they prioritize profits over people. It's really not an opinion. Our statistics say it all. This leviathan has grown so big that many, myself included, refer to it as a medical-military-industrial complex, lacking all checks and balances. If we can agree that the medical system is problematic, then we must ask ourselves, what is the solution? There are a few of us who have made the hard financial decision to step away from hospital-based medicine, And I'm not even sure that that's the answer. Hospitals and doctors are a great last resort. If I'm in a motorcycle accident, or one of my daughters breaks a bone, or even for the rare truly emergent C-section, we are going to the hospital. Hemorrhage, poisoning, sepsis, a nail in my freaking skull, call an ambulance. We should still be grateful for the house of God in these situations. But prevention or reversal of the chronic diseases that are bankrupting our economy, alternatives to pharmaceuticals and surgery, Low-risk vaginal birth? Pregnancy isn't a disease, and birth isn't a medical procedure. So why all the fuss unless it's needed? The politics of healthcare, as the politics of anything are complicated. Yet I can't wrap my head around the infighting. Nearly every doctor or midwife that I've had the pleasure of meeting is a genuinely good person. I am a husband, a father, a son, a brother, a man with a massive ride-or-die social circle, a home birth doctor who has helped countless women exercise their autonomy when the system would otherwise have perpetuated the narrative that they are broken as soon as they see those two lines appear on the home pregnancy test. I never cause intentional harm to others. Hell, I prefer to carry hairy spiders outside rather than kill them. I even delicately moved a snail from my windshield this morning before before turning on the wipers for fear of injuring him or her. I respect others' boundaries. I can be impatient while on hold with AT&T customer service, never said it was perfect, but I am polite to cashiers. I do my best to see issues from others' points of view, I reflect on my actions and emotions daily, often with the result of identifying something I could have done to save someone else pain or hardship. I even teach my kids not to pull leaves or flowers off of living plants, because they have feelings too. And I still occasionally slip up and allow myself to react impulsively to criticism. A simple binary of good and evil never seems to do the individual any justice, no matter what you heard about this or that doctor and midwife. There's always more to the story. But nowadays headlines often win. In other news, our Leviathan medical system continues to traumatize women and their families while us birth workers are occupied tearing one another down. Midwives on midwives, doctors on doctors, doctors on midwives, midwives on doctors. Certified professional midwives against traditional midwives. Licensed against unlicensed midwives. We are all siloed off on our self-proclaimed pedestals of righteousness while the leviathan grows bigger and stronger. And the patriarchy that so many real feminists want to disassemble is perpetuated by those who claim to want to destroy it. If you attend enough births, you will eventually experience a dead baby, dead mom, or horrific emergency putting all of your skills to the test. It's a part of the package deal as these circumstances, albeit rare, reflect our biological reality. Let me repeat that. If you sit with enough births, you will eventually hold a dead baby in your hands. Memento mori. So if we get caught up in the shame and blame game, the beauty offered by home birth can more easily be perversed by the system, and more out-of-hospital birth workers are going to be compelled to stop practicing. Homebirth birth has had optics issues for hundreds of years, but especially since the early 20th century, when the Rockefellers and Carnegies financed a campaign to monopolize birth on behalf of the obstetricians. Our ongoing infighting merely perpetuates the notion that home birth is a bad choice. I managed to persuade most women who asked me to attend their births to find a midwife or birth center, because I truly believe in the excellence of midwives. But exceptions do arise, requiring me to step into the role. Say that I just stopped offering birth services altogether. Who is going to attend to the women in my county with four prior C-sections who are determined to stay out of hospitals since their youngest child was paralyzed from the neck down after their six-month routine vaccines and now has a feeding tube and tracheostomy? Are you going to attend their home birth? Who out there will attend the birth of a woman who has two prior C-sections, the first a preterm C-section for help syndrome, the second a preterm C-section for severe preeclampsia requiring magnesium sulfate, and the third, the one I attended, that ultimately resulted in a successful home vaginal birth after two C-sections that also, mind you, ended up as a surprise breach. And guess what? Despite a limited household income, she and her partner managed to invest their finances towards healthier options that afforded her a hypertension-free pregnancy and postpartum. Who was doing this work? If you aren't offering these services to women in your community, then it's important to acknowledge from where your resistance is arising. Fortunately, in my county, there is a community of badass midwives who are willing to honor women's rights to informed consent and refusal, but this community has been hard fought. Every election cycle, a myriad of sidebars arises in our collective national consciousness that seems to distract from the more pressing issues at hand. These sidebars include... The decline of christian values the war on drugs immigration second amendment rights no doubt these are important issues but aren't the issues of poor central leadership bankruptcy rates and the expanding corporatocracy growing inequality and equity and the ecological catastrophe on the horizon more important in the long run to more people when the opportunity arises to vote in better leadership the ruling elites most notably the church the state and the rich distract us from more important issues with slogans like, Build the Wall! We scratch our heads as we watch the identity and security of our nation crumble before our eyes, dumbfounded by what seems to be an inevitable demise of a nation that prides itself on being, quote, the land of the free. Reality has become a moving target, based on the slogan du jour. I just finished reading Chris Hedges' masterpiece, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. Hedges writes, Illusions puncture our lives, blinding us to our in- inconsistencies and repeated moral failings. In wartime, these illusions are compounded. We dismantle, uh, dismantle our moral universe to serve the cause of war, and once it is dismantled, it is nearly impossible to put it back together. It is very hard for us to see the justice of the other side, that we too bear guilt. End quote. This has led to a loss of identity, a hard compromise that is building barriers of entry to, quote, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible that Charles Eisenstein has so poetically described. Meanwhile, the fat cats on Wall Street and the World Economic Forum are sitting atop their perches, enjoying the show, jeering the crabs in the bucket. This illusion of separation is crippling our nation. This jeering preys on social conformity and confirmation bias, two key facets to human nature. The process by which these two factors can be weaponized is outlined in A Citizen's Guide to Fifth Generation Warfare by Michael Flynn and Boone Cutler. One, discreetly manipulate the smaller group and make them vocal to appear as if they are the majority audience who expresses the needs and desires of the majority. Two, leverage messaging in SIACs to develop an in-group us versus out-group them dynamic to recruit the wider audience who desire to simply be the in-group. Three, repeat the process to augment the effects and continually demonize the opposition's viewpoints to make them appear as the reviled out-group. These two instincts, social conformity and confirmation bias, expose us to go with the current of the times, even if it betrays our moral aptitudes. Alouk Vaid Menon, a trans rights activist who uses non binary pronouns, beautifully shared on the Man Enough podcast in a recent interview that in trying to understand somebody, we must first objectify them. And once we objectify something, we no longer treat it as a living thing. Before you get fidgety, put your inclinations around trans rights to the side for a moment. There's a deep truth here in what Alouk is saying. The objectification of trees, flowers, insects, and water systems has led to the destruction of our ecosystem. The objectification of minorities has led to our appallingly racist society. The objectification of women has resulted in an assault on on informed consent. Objectification is also apparent in the birth work community. By preying on your need to be in the in-group, the ruling elites, the cult of medicine, are winning. You let them win by continuing to outsource your power in an effort to be seen in a favorable light by your captors. How how has a life of outsourcing your power served you, your family, your income? Where does the ruling elite or the medical establishment get its power? They take it from you. And if you're willing to give it up or press others to give theirs away by tearing them down, this outsourcing to the system will increase and compound with time. This horizontal violence is merely a distraction from the real work at hand, honoring a woman's choice to decide what happens to her body. It might rattle your cage, Mr. or Mrs. healthcare worker, but if a conscious woman refuses a C-section, that's her prerogative. Yes, even if the baby would die through this refusal. During COVID, the manipulation of the media and the subliminal messaging that led to infighting in so many of our relationships was likely an intentional effort to distract people from the issue at hand, while our freedoms that many have long taken for granted were pared down even further. These efforts are not a modern phenomenon. Psychological operations, PSYOPs, as defined in A Citizen's Guide to Fifth Generation Warfare are, quote, operations designed to convey selective information and indicators to audiences to influence their emotions, motives, and objective reasoning in order to affect the behavior of governments, organizations, groups, and individuals, end quote. The true controversy left from the ashes of the COVID infighting wasn't an issue of safety or lack thereof. Many people were baited to infight with their closest friends and allies through media broadcasts and paid actors encouraging the masses to, quote, trust the science. This has led to deep wounds in our communities. Meanwhile, Pfizer announced that 2022 was a year in which we set all-time highs in several financial categories. This statistic is proudly featured on their website. And while all of the infighting is heating up, our maternity statistics are sliding. Average C-section rates are approaching 40% nationally, and nearly a quarter of pregnancies are being induced. Thanks, Arrive Trial. Our maternal mortality rates are the worst of all wealthy nations, and those rates are doubled for black women. Plus, we are spending more on pharmaceutical drugs than any other nation in the world. I can't think of anybody who roots for the empire while watching Star Wars. So where are my fellow rebels? Apparently, birth workers have flipped the channel to Looney Tunes. Midwives are tearing down other midwives on social media. Good doctors are being harassed by other doctors simply due to differences in their practices. And birth workers of all types are more interested in pointing out others' faults, even the minor transgressions, in order to, what, improve maternity care? I get it. This is a challenging world to live in. But if you were compelled to criticize others, I sense that maybe you were criticized in the past and wounded by a colleague's words and you never were honored with grace and compassion or even an apology. One relatively famous or infamous midwife was upset with me recently because I reposted a successful breach birth video that she had reposted a week prior. My post was lauded while hers was removed at the request of the owner. The reasoning for the owner's request was simple. The caption accompanying the midwife's reposting was critical of the care provided to the person giving birth, going so far as to provide an itemized list of what the care team should have done and insisting that, quote, not enough interventions were offered. My response? The mom and baby both ultimately were fine, and we weren't there. We don't know how the mother was counseled before and during the birth. We know not about the relationship between the mother and her midwife. In my opinion, we have no place in this conversation. The birth work community is rife with Monday morning quarterbacking, as if anybody out there could possibly have the right answer in every circumstance. To be frank... If you weren't there, and your opinion wasn't solicited, then why is your opinion relevant? And you know what? I still love this midwife, despite her resentment towards me. I still trust that she's doing the best she can. I'm not willing to compromise my values over the righteousness of hindsight. I trust that her criticisms, as most, come from a place of love. They're an extension of her dedication to improving the care of women. But social media being what it is, I don't think that this is the way to go. Harsh criticism is reserved for mortality and morbidity conferences and peer review. There are safe harbors for this, and one of these harbors comes by way of an ancient technology known as face-to-face conversation, where more questions are asked before criticisms are thrown. Maybe I'm going out on a limb here, but isn't this infighting exactly what the Protestants and Catholics in cooperation with the ruling elites of the state relied on to fuel the witch hunts of the 13th through 17th centuries? In the dark Middle Ages, families would protect themselves by accusing their neighbors of being witches, as the witch hunters cared not who they murdered, they just needed blood. And just because you managed to distract their scent today doesn't mean they won't come after you tomorrow. If the peasants in feudalistic societies banded together rather than appealing to their repressors, perhaps things would have gone a little differently. This phenomenon has been described in psychology as the prisoner's dilemma. Would it be reasonable to conceive of these trivial distractions around hormonal contraception and home birth as a part of a coordinated PSYOP? After all, I think we can all agree that we want pregnancy and childbirth statistics to improve. The authors of A Citizen's Guide to Fifth Generation Warfare point out that, quote, the study of cognitive attributes such as opinions, interests, attitudes, fears, and beliefs, as well as the study of overt behavior as an individual or as part of a group, are used to develop a PSYOP plan, end quote. Naturally, when a white male OBGYN says, Hey guys, I think we're underemphasizing the downsides of long term hormonal contraception, isn't this something we should be talking about? It's easy to provoke an emotional response from the collective that this type of suggestion is misogynistic without perhaps acknowledging that this insight, albeit hard to swallow, may also carry a whiff of truth. And who stands to gain from this provocation? Well, the global hormonal contraception market eclipsed $22 billion in 2022. I'll let you figure out the rest. Now, don't get me wrong. My retaliations to criticisms can be nasty, so much so that I was sufficiently compelled to post an apology video on Instagram for my behavior. I've also snapped back at those who criticize my insistence that personal accountability is a critical part of preventing pregnancy complications and ultimately changing the US maternity statistics for the better. This essay is not meant to distract you from my own personal issues. I have to lay in the bed that I have made for myself, and I continue to self-reflect so that women and their families can feel confident in their decisions when they seek me out for maternity care. No excuses. But my transgressions aside, the infighting among the birthwork community, particularly in the United States, seems to be perpetuating the collective's reliance on an antiquated, profit-motivated healthcare system rather than encouraging progress towards any whispers of reform. According to Hedges, this craving for war, a devotion to Thanatos rather than Eros, is an addictive behavior that ultimately leads to self-destruction. This is why so many war-hungry youths identify with the admittedly sexy Navy and Marines ads that grace our television screens during commercial breaks. They invest deeply into the notion that arming yourself and walking proudly onto the battlefield to kill in the name of, quote, freedom, is the most direct path to manhood. But these youths make such a commitment to war, Thanatos, that they become addicted to the siren's call of victory and glory. Ultimately, like the hungry ghost, never satiated, no matter how indulgent the initial high, these youths begin to worship Thanatos, and their passion is turned on themselves. Ongoing high suicide rates among war veterans is a reality that we have to accept. If you take a quick glance at the media, especially social media, you see the same behavior. Only the ammunition isn't bullets and missiles, but rather the poison and vitriol of the English language. Forget the backstory. Just read the headline. Forget the methodologies. Just read the abstract. Forget the film. Just watch the trailer. Forget the person. Just react to the media-generated persona. The ability to hide behind our phones and computers with the sole intention of making a person feel bad through our own pain projection is no different than those addicted to war, those kneeling in reverence to Thanatos. I sense a deep inward sadness that many try to fulfill through external validation. And this validation, for some, comes in tiny, single-serving packets on social media. And if this is a primary source of validation, then the seeking must be constant. Hence, 6,000 tweets on Twitter per second. What if instead of war being the force that gives us meaning, events reminding us of our own mortality could serve this role? Sitting with birth, like sitting with death, gives us the opportunity to practice confronting our own mortality over and over and over again. Maybe this is why Stephen Jenkinson urges his readers to consider, could death be a privilege rather than something to run away from? As Teddy Roosevelt suggested, quote, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. End quote. If one of your critics isn't in the arena, if they haven't done their homework, if they don't sit with women, if they aren't in the process of building a family, then their opinion shouldn't matter. If we, those in the arena, want to improve maternity care, we need to have compassion for those who are sitting with women in childbirth, all of them even the conventional OBGYNs who may have lost their way. On infrequent occasions, a colleague will tell us, nice work. Clients are typically happy and proud of us when there is a good outcome. But in general, birth workers are rarely praised for their commitment to this job. Doctors are rarely giving kudos for investing decades into academia. And it's even rarer that people praise you for extending your training to include more alternative options. We thrive on these occasional thank yous because we don't get them often in our tangential acquaintances, People almost never praise others for just being a decent person. But they come down on you hard when you choose a path that confronts their personal narrative. When I was a resident, my program director told me within a few months of beginning my training, you seem distracted. Your wife and future family need to know that. From this point forward, they come second to your career." End quote. I guess my commitment to my wife was a bit unusual for her taste. My high school sweetheart is my biggest advocate, but she also reflects the power of the divine feminine, offering me a looking glass to reflect on how I show up in my divine masculinity and the nurturing, or lack thereof, that I provide to our relationship. How can I be expected to show up as a healer when a focus of my training was to become dehumanized myself? More importantly, how can I show up for soon-to-be parents if I'm being told that even my wife doesn't precede my career? Whether intentional or not, this messaging leaves many doctors to identify with their jobs so intimately that the possibility of failing in their work would be catastrophic to their identity. If I'm not good at this role, which I've prioritized over even my wife and children, then I have no value at all. Many OBGYNs may have lost their way, but anybody can be persuaded. This persuasion is not going to come from a place of hate or fear, but rather love. Trust me, I know. I'm living it right now. Every one of you has done something you aren't proud of. I've heard it all when it comes to midwives, some with nearly celebrity status in North America. Only the perfect are infallible. And still, if you are doing the work and you have an earnest desire to change things up, to strip the power from the system that has bound women in the dorsal lithotomy position, that insists on strapping their arms and legs down crucifixion style, that continues to traumatize the womb through unnecessary cervical exams and surgeries then i've got your back but i maintain that we all have to earnestly try to snap out of this spell that we're under and refocus on what's important through the work of steven porges and the polyvagal institute i've learned that connection is preceded by safety and right now i know for certain that many birth workers do not feel safe in a room with other birth workers in terms of the nervous system they are stuck in a state of freeze governed by the dorsal vagal component of the autonomic nervous system. We can't be the best versions of ourselves while stuck in dorsal vagal. And as long as we are unwilling to be vulnerable with one another, we will remain in dorsal vagal, feeling unsafe around one another. A simple illustration of this free state can be seen on any prom dance floor. Many young men don't feel comfortable dancing in front of others, a lasting attribute for many of us. Because they fear being ridiculed by other young men who laugh and jeer those brave enough to cut the rug in front of their peers. The issue is that those who are doing the jeering are the ones who are most insecure about public displays of dancing. When you don't feel safe, you don't dance. When you don't feel safe, you don't grow. When you don't feel safe, you can't connect. When you don't feel safe, you lash out. When you don't feel safe, your labor stalls. When you don't feel safe, You stay in a freeze pattern, waiting for somebody to lean in and bear witness to your pain in order to be lifted up. In residency training, colleagues would rarely admit fault or ignorance for fear of retribution. This is why it's hard for people to apologize, especially doctors. Instead, they have trained their defenses and doubled up on their armor. Put yourself in their shoes. You have $500,000 in school debt. You are making a great salary. You have colleagues that think and speak like you. You work relatively regular hours, and now you're being told that the birth work practices you were modeled might be be more harmful than beneficial? I feel you, docs. But we cannot improve our care of patients without identifying our shortcomings any more than we can get out of the woods without acknowledging that we are lost. Many doctors and midwives are stuck in a dorsal vagal freeze pattern, whether due to the deep conditioning around litigation fears, becoming a part of the outgroup, or even due to the color of their skin. I remember watching 13th, a film centered, centered around race in the United States criminal justice system. The film is titled after the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which outlawed slavery. In the film... I remember a variety of familiar scenes in which a mob of white people around the time of the civil rights movements are harassing black men in the streets, kicking them, pushing them, jeering them, making it clear that they were in the outgroup. I often wonder, would I have the courage to join that black gentleman in the outgroup, to defend him, to put myself in between him and the angry mob? I'd like to think so. You probably feel the same way. Well, opportunities abound in contemporary society. Have you been passing your own test? Shifting our devotion from Thanatos to Eros, we can begin to promote connection and community. But first, we must feel safe amongst our peers, which seems like a tall ask, given our nation's very fabric of systemic racism and ongoing bigotry and intolerance. But let's pause. What's your goal? Is it to gain newsletter subscribers? Instagram followers? To get a cheap laugh or like on Facebook? To signal your virtues? Of course not. You desire, as do I, for women to be able to give birth on their own terms with the support of someone who has dedicated their entire life to the task of making people feel cared for in their most vulnerable states. But are we hoping that those who make mistakes are able to learn from those mistakes? Or do we wish to see everybody who has the courage to publicly denounce our corrupt medical system burn at the stake like the witches of the dark ages? When rare bad outcomes arise, it's other birth workers and hospital staff who generally make the accusations against midwives. And if found guilty, midwives may find themselves in a jail cell adjacent to murderers. Is that the spectacle that we want? Is this what the, quote, land of the free stands for? The most potent tool against PSYOPs and our medical-military-industrial complex is critical thinking. Another gem from A Citizen's Guide to Fifth Generation Warfare, quote, Critical thinking calls for a persistent effort to examine any belief or supposed form of knowledge in the light of the evidence that supports it and the further conclusions to which it tends. It requires the ability to reconstruct one's patterns of beliefs on the basis of wider experience and to render accurate judgments about specific things and qualities in everyday life. Critical thinking short-circuits the PSYOP campaigns that are meant to trick your emotions and polarize your thinking. When a headline or hearsay about a fellow birth worker comes your way, first ask yourself, does this sound true based on my direct experience with this person? Investigate the story to its fullest. Ask questions first, pass judgments later. By by no means do I mean to excuse some of the terrible things that have happened to women at the hands of bad doctors and midwives. Some people aren't aren't cut out for this. Negligence and malpractice should be punished. But use your critical thinking skills first before you cast any stones. To abandon your own lived experience or intuition is to let the cult of medicine win. Every time you feel compelled to respond to controversy or misfortune, ask yourself, what would love do? When your partner feels like you aren't connecting, do you immediately become defensive? Or do you receive their grievances with an open mind and open heart? When you get into a fight with a friend or family member, do you ever reflect afterwards on how you may have handled the situation differently? Do you ever think to yourself, maybe I had some role in this marital issue? What if you were as invested in making other birth workers feel safe with you as you were invested in making your family feel safe with you? Taking accountability for your actions and emotions is part of creating community. Accountability means more than spending lots of money on expensive food. It could also be considered an invitation to leverage whatever gifts you bring to the table to make your community stronger. The big question we should all be asking ourselves when we feel compelled to criticize others, do I want help or do I want attention? The help you need for healing your inner wounds might be right there for you to take, but you have to be willing to compromise the attention that you might lose if those wounds are healed. This is what accountability looks like. Bob Marley, Mahatma Gandhi, Ram Das, Thich Nhat Hanh, Pema Chodron, they all speak eloquently about love. All you need is love, is arguably the Beatles' most recognizable song worldwide. Do you think that when they spoke of love that they forgot to clarify that you can only love someone who agrees with you? In reframing our position in the world from a reverence for Thanatos to a devotion to Eros, look no further than your own children. Their whole human expression is one of love. They love the butterflies, they love the neighbor's dog, they love the water park, and they love you, no matter what. How have we gone so far astray from loving one another and ourselves? When kids misbehave, we don't try to destroy their lives on social media. We gently guide them back to love. And unfortunately, many adults still carry childhood wounds. When I left the system, it ultimately relieved a tremendous burden. It felt like an act of self-love. And you, however you choose to show up in the world, whether you're a health coach, new to spirituality, a trash collector, a Navy SEAL, a stay-at-home parent, a postal worker, or even a sex worker, when you stand in your truth, it can feel like an act of self-love. If your critics aren't in the arena, consider if their criticisms are in alignment with your truth and go from there. I've been recently gifting out copies of O.G. Mandino's bestseller, The Greatest Salesman in the World, which is less about sales and entirely about connection. In one of his mantras, he writes, When I am tempted to criticize, I will bite on my tongue. When I am moved to praise, I will shout from the roofs. Is it not so that birds, the wind, the sea, and all nature speaks with the music of praise for their creator? Can not I speak with the same music to his children? For just as love is my weapon to open the hearts of men, Love is also my shield to repulse the arrows of hate and the spears of anger. There are two wolves living inside of you. One is full of love, one is full of hate. And these two wolves are always grappling for supremacy. Which wolf wins? The one that you feed.